Good morning. My name's Lachlan, one of the pastors here, and I've got the privilege of unpacking this part of God's Word for us this morning, helping us to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying there. I've had a great time wrestling with these 14 verses the last couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to this morning. You're going to want to keep your Bible open there. We're going to dig in deep to the particulars there, so it's worth being able to see it and watch on to check that what I'm saying is what's there in the text. There's also an outline that you received on your way in. You can take some notes in there. But why don't I pray that God would do His work in our hearts by His Spirit this morning? Because I can speak... But it's God that will take these truths and help them to ease our hearts and work in our hearts. So we're going to pray that God will do that work this morning. Father, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you have given us such precious words, words of eternal life. Help us this morning to hear these words in John's Gospel, not just as the words of men, not as dry, dusty pages of an old book, but to hear them hot off your lips spoken afresh to us to bring comfort to our hearts. So please do comfort our troubled hearts this morning. Show us who Jesus is, show us what our future holds, and by doing that, would you encourage us for this week ahead as we go out into this world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, do you ever get anxious? I do. Uh, All sorts of things in our world, all sorts of circumstances of life can make us anxious. Uh, Life gets stressful, a tragedy strikes. You have to make decisions, but you don't know the future. That's pretty stressful. You have to talk to people. That's pretty stressful. You have to talk to some people you don't like very much or meet new people and you're like, oh, this is uh, my heart starting to flutter. Or perhaps you've got teenage kids and they've gone out for the night and it's now 1am and you don't know where they are, you haven't heard from them. All sorts of things can make us anxious. You might see the rising opposition to Christianity across the world and start to be troubled. You know the feeling, your heart starts to race, it feels like it's being stirred up within you, your stomach's twisting, you're struggling to sleep, tossing and turning, you're afraid. As we hear God's word this morning, we're brought into a moment where this is what Jesus is feeling, that feeling of anxiety and trouble. And his disciples, his students and followers, it's what they're feeling as well. John's repeated the language for us so that we get the feeling. In John 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. Again, in John 13, verse 21, that we saw last week, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And in the first verse that Steve read for us this morning, 14, verse 1, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. As we come into John 14, we're joining Jesus and his friends over dinner, and Jesus knows that in about nine hours' time, he's going to be killed. In chapter 13, Jesus has told his disciples that he's about to leave them, and that they can't come with him. More than that, he's just told Peter that he would deny knowing Jesus. Peter was this brave man with all the hype, he thought he was so great, but his bravado has been shattered to pieces. Will you lay down your life for me, Jesus says? No, no, you're going to deny me three times tonight. You imagine what the other disciples are feeling at that point. If Peter's faith is going to fail, this strong one amongst us, is my faith going to last? And these are men who have left everything to follow Jesus, left their family, left their careers behind. And now Jesus is doubting their commitment and he tells them that he's leaving them. I hope you can picture the room and feel the emotional pressure that these men are under. 
As we come in at chapter 14, Jesus, he's dealing with his own inner turmoil, but he doesn't think of himself at this moment. He looks at his disciples, he loves them, and he reassures them. He says, friends, don't let your hearts be troubled. There's not empty words from Jesus. It's not just positive thinking. No, Jesus offers an actual substantial basis for his followers. So that as they go through this difficult time, they might not get swept up into an unholy turmoil, being swept up in their anxiety, paralyzed into inaction. Jesus is going to speak across the next 14 verses and give us as well a substantial basis to ease our troubled hearts. Whether your heart is troubled right now as you come in this morning, I don't know what your week's been, perhaps there's some anxiety bubbling away there. Or perhaps at some future point in life, you'll be tempted to be anxious. The the truths that we're going to see in John 14 this morning, they're worth clinging to, meditating on, coming back to time and time again. Jesus is the way to ease a troubled heart. So have a look with me at verse 1, see what Jesus tells his disciples there. John 14 verse 1. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus tells us right up front, what's the way to deal with trouble and fear? Trust Jesus. That's what belief means in the Bible. Trust, rely on, depend upon. So Jesus says, don't be troubled. Instead, trust me. Trust Jesus. It's an amazing thing to tell someone to do. Trust me. There's no ordinary human that is so trustworthy that all of our anxiety will be relieved by trusting in them. But Jesus, as he speaks, he's no ordinary human. Do you notice there in verse 1, he's calling his followers to trust him to the very same degree that they trust God. Believe in God and believe in me. Only Jesus can call for that level of trust because Jesus is God. That's the clear message of the Bible from the start to the finish, that Jesus is the creator God who turned up in the flesh. We're going to press into that some more soon. For now, we just need to see that the solution to the troubled heart will be trusting Jesus, depending on Him, relying on Him, trusting His words. And isn't that always the battle that's raging in our hearts? There's that question, will we believe Jesus or will we live and act out of unbelief? In this moment of decision, will we trust Jesus Or we doubt Him and His goodness and His love for us. Every moment of temptation, every moment of anxiety is a battle for belief or unbelief. So right at the outset, Jesus calls His disciples, don't be troubled, trust Me. And then He goes on to give them three truths that they need to believe as they trust Him. Three truths that will engage with their particular anxiety and fear on this particular night when Jesus is leaving them. The first truth, it's there in verse 2 to 3. Jesus says, don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place where you will be with me. Read it with me from verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. See the first thing that Jesus wants His disciples to trust Him in? He is going to prepare a place for His people to be with Him. Now you can see how immediately relevant that is to the disciples on this night. Jesus is about to leave them, that's scary, but Jesus says, 
look, I'm not going forever. I'll be back. We'll be together again soon. This isn't a final farewell. This isn't goodbye. It's, I'll see you soon. There's comfort in that truth. And Jesus fleshes it out some more. Where's he off to? He says in verse 2 that he's off to his father's house. And now elsewhere, Jesus has used that phrase, father's house, to talk about the Jewish temple. And the temple was a place with many rooms. Uh, there were rooms for the priests to live in while they worked in the temple on their rotation. So is Jesus talking about the temple here? I don't think so. Jesus isn't on his way to the temple tonight, is he? That's not where he's going. No, he's on his way to die and then to rise again to new life and then to ascend to heaven back to the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. And so the Father's house here in verse 2, it's not the temple, it seems to be a metaphor for heaven, the place where God dwells. Jesus says to his followers, Guys, there's room in heaven for you. I'm on my way there. I'm going to go get your place ready. Now, I used to think, as I read this verse, that Jesus has spent the last 2,000 years preparing heaven for me. He went there on that night 2,000 years ago, and since then, he's just been tidying the place up, doing some renovations, whatever it might look like. I thought it was this long process of preparation. As I've looked at it close to the last couple of weeks, I think I've changed my mind. I think I've been wrong. I think Jesus is actually saying here that his going away is the preparation. That the process of him departing is the way that he prepares our place. That as he dies, he prepares our spot in heaven. You see, we're all sinful. If we were to be transported to heaven right now, we'd be at best like Isaiah who fell flat on his face and cried out in terror, I'm ruined, I'm a sinner. That microphone's gone. Is it back on now? There we go. That was fun. Uh, We're talking about heaven. We can't just waltz into heaven. We're people who have rebelled and disobeyed God. We can't just turn up into heaven and think it'll all be okay. But Jesus prepares heaven for us by preparing us for heaven, by dying in our place so that we can be washed clean, forgiven, transformed and dressed for an eternity with God. So I don't think Jesus has been tidying up the place for 2,000 years. I think his death is the way that he prepares the place for us. But either way, the focus of verse 2 to 3 is not actually about the place that we're going at all, but the person that will be there. Do you see that? The focus of verse 2 to 3 is the hope that we will be with Jesus. That's the great truth that comforts true disciples. It's the hope of seeing Jesus and being with him Fellowship with Jesus is the joy. Fellowship with Jesus is the crown jewel. That is the highest privilege of heaven. Not the joys of some endless skate park or whatever kind of your earthly pleasure is. That's not the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven is being with Jesus. Seeing him face to face. Being embraced in the fullness of his love again. It's like Paul says in Philippians. I long to depart and be with Christ. That's the hope of the true disciple. So Jesus says in verse 3, I will come again and I'll take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. That's such comforting words for troubled disciples. Are you troubled? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Do you perhaps feel sometimes, uh, wonder about Jesus' absence? Where is he? Where's he gone? When is he coming back? 
Well, friend, if that's you, trust Jesus. He's prepared a place for you where you will be with him for eternity. You may not see it now, you may not see him now, and that's why it takes trust. Will you believe Jesus' words? He's told you that he's coming for you. He's told you that he wants to spend an eternity with you. Trust him, believe him. And that's the first comforting truth from Jesus. He's going to prepare a place for his people to be with him. And the second truth comes up in verse 4. Jesus is the way and the only way to the Father. So read it with me from verse 4. Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is leaving, his disciples can't go with him yet, but Jesus tells them, you guys know the way, you know the directions, you don't need to pull out Google Maps and type in the address to get there, you know where you're going, you know how to get there. And you'll notice Thomas is a bit confused at this point still, I'm sure I would have been if I was there, we've got the benefit of hindsight to understand Jesus. Uh, Thomas is still thinking about geographical location, he asks their Lord, we don't know the destination, let alone the directions. Jesus' reply in verse 6, it's simple enough for a child to understand and yet has such depth to it, doesn't it? I am the way. Jesus is the way and the only way to the Father. And you'll notice again, Jesus isn't so much concerned about the physical location. It's not about the place, but the person. It's where the Father is. It's where we'll be with God, enjoying a wonderful father-son or father-daughter relationship, mediated by that physical presence of Christ, the radiance of the Father. Thomas has still been thinking in terms of a place, trying to catch up with Jesus' meaning, but Jesus is saying, pure and simple, if you want to be with God, you can be with God, but you have to come through me. You have to come with me. And for the disciples on that final night, the This is another truth that comforts their troubled hearts. Jesus is reassuring them, you're on the right track. Yeah, I'm leaving, but you don't need to change anything that you've been doing. You've been going the right way. Stick with Jesus and you'll make it to heaven to be with Him and with the Father forever. Jesus is the way to the Father. So that's the comfort for the disciples on that night. But for us, I thought it'd be worth just teasing out a couple of things that Jesus doesn't say here. John 14 verse 6 is one of those critical verses that is so helpful for us to reflect upon. You'll notice Jesus doesn't say, I've shown you the way to the Father. It's not that Jesus has blazed a trail that He now commands us to follow in. We don't get to heaven by doing what Jesus did. He didn't come and set us an example and then say, there you go, there's the path, follow along in my example and you'll get there. So please don't come to Christianity and think that some pattern of life, some list of rules, some set of behaviour is the way that you make it to heaven. It's not. You make it to heaven by trusting Jesus. He didn't come to show us the way, He came to be the way. He is the way that we get to the Father. You get to heaven by trusting Jesus, that He died for you, that He rose to new life for you. He is the way. Another thing that Jesus doesn't say is, I'm one of the ways to the Father. 
There's absolutely no way for a Christian to hold that view. Jesus rules it out so thoroughly, doesn't he? Verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. In case we haven't got it yet, he says, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, there is no other path. It's not the case that all the religions in the world are just different ways of making it to the same place. If that were true, then Jesus couldn't be one of those paths because he'd be wrong in this verse. So please don't claim that you trust Jesus if you think that there are other ways of making it to heaven. If you think that sincere Muslims will be in heaven, then you're not believing what Jesus says in this verse. If you think that sincere Mormons, sincere Hindus, kind atheists will be in heaven, then you actually disagree with Jesus. Can you see that? Jesus couldn't be clearer, I don't think. So either he is wrong or you are wrong. You can't both be right. There are not many ways to the Father, there is one way, Jesus. For some of you who got that song going through your head right now, it's would have been, no, I don't know, it's too old to sing together in church now, but one way, Jesus, there's only one. There's no other path. And look, I understand it, it's nice, it's emotionally easier to think that others will be all right in the end. I think that's what drives us to say that there are other ways, because it's so clear in the pages of Scripture, but gosh, it's hard emotionally, isn't it, to think that lots of people are headed for an eternity of hell, shut out from the presence and goodness of God. That is hard. It, it ought to bring tears to our eyes as you reflect on loved ones that you know who are following some other path at the moment. Yeah, it's hard emotionally, but we can't choose our truth based on what's easy. Jesus is clear. He is the true way, the only way to life, the only way to God and to heaven with God. And so that truth is the driving force behind fervent evangelism. People need to know Jesus. He's not an optional extra in life. He's a necessity. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're not in a living relationship with Jesus. You're not hearing His Word in the Bible, responding to Him in prayer, trusting Him. Then please hear Jesus this morning. You are not on your way to heaven at the moment, but to hell. That breaks my heart for you. I want you to know Jesus. Your destination can change right now this morning. Come to Jesus this morning. He is the way, the only way to the Father. Come to Jesus this morning. Honour Him as your loving King. Trust Him. Believe in Him. And join us in being with Jesus forever. We've digressed away from the comfort of these verses to troubled disciples, but it was just worth spending that time teasing out those implications. Let me bring it back to the main theme. John 14, Jesus is saying to troubled disciples, trust me. Yes, I'm leaving you now, but I'm going to prepare a place for you with my Father and then I'll come to get you so that we can be together forever. Yes, I'm leaving now, but you guys know the way. I'm the way. I've made the way. Come through me. Come with me. Trust my death and resurrection that they are for you. Comforting words to these troubled disciples. And then Jesus closes with a third comforting truth. Jesus says that he reveals the Father. That's interesting to think through the comfort of that truth, but verse 7 to 11, Jesus is saying that he reveals the Father. Pick it up with me at verse 7. 
Jesus says, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Now, there's some intricacy in Jesus' teaching here, but again, I hope the main point is clear and simple. Jesus is saying, if you know me, then you know the Father. If you know me, then you know God. This is nothing new. This has been one of the core messages of Jesus throughout John's Gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, in the introduction to the Gospel, we heard that no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. And Jesus' deeds on earth were a revelation of God. Everything that he did, everything that he said, it shows us who God is and what God is like. So back in chapter 5, verse 19, hopefully you can see it up on screen there. Chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus taught, The Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. So the things that Jesus does, it's not just showing us some man, Jesus... They're showing us God. In the same way, Jesus' words, when he speaks, we're not just hearing a man, we're hearing the Father, God. So John 8, verse 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. Jesus' works are the Father's works. Jesus' words are the Father's words. So close is the link that when you get to John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And that's all the language in the background that Jesus is now reiterating as he shares this meal with his disciples in John 14. You can sense his exasperation in verse 9 and 10, can't you? Have I been with you all this time? Did you not hear what I said back then? Did you not remember? Have you not recognized me yet? Believe me. Trust me, Jesus says. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, why is that such a big deal? On this night, around the dinner table, as the disciples are troubled, why is this a comfort for troubled disciples? It's comforting because it means that there's no gap between what Jesus has told them and what is actually true. See, if Jesus wasn't in such perfect unity with the Father, then there's the possibility that Jesus might say to his disciples, oh, it's all okay, but then the Father might not actually think it's all okay. Jesus might be saying to them, yeah, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but then the Father might say, ah, that wasn't good enough. No place for you in heaven now. If there was a gap, if if it wasn't for the unity of Jesus and the Father, that gap would be there as a possibility. It's kind of like the difference between speaking to an American ambassador and speaking to the American president himself. I had to Google to find out who the ambassador to New Zealand was. Apparently, he's been on TV a fair bunch of times. There's an image up on screen of him. Scott Brown is his name. You might recognize him. Uh, You could talk to Scott Brown, the American ambassador to New Zealand, and he might tell you all sorts of things about American policy and what America is going to do, and that would be all well and good. But the president might have different ideas. There's a gap between the ambassador and the president. 
And so you might be talking to the ambassador, but getting the wrong picture about what the president actually thinks and what the president's going to do. But if you talk to the president himself, you don't have to worry about that gap. You're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. That's kind of the phrase that we've used to describe that, isn't it? Now, the American example is a bit of a flawed example, because, look, you might hear from the president himself, and then he might change his mind the next day. You might not choose to trust him. He might change what he said a couple of weeks' time. But there is still that difference, isn't there, between hearing something straight from the person themselves and hearing it from a messenger. And what Jesus is saying in John is that he is no mere messenger for God. He's not just an ambassador. He is God himself in the flesh. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, don't be troubled. Trust me. You know me and so you know God. Everything that I've told you, you've heard the Father's words and his will So there is a place in heaven for you, with me and with the Father, and I'm the way for you to get there. Don't be troubled. Trust me. Aren't those great truths for us to cling to, for us to meditate on when we feel anxious and troubled? You will be with Jesus. He is coming back for you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you know Jesus, then you have life and truth. And you're on your way to heaven. And Jesus has revealed the Father. There is no gap where the message might have broken down. When you feel anxious, when your heart starts to flutter and your stomach starts to twist, particularly when that anxiety arises from the fact that Jesus isn't here yet, then come back to these verses. Come back to these truths and find this comfort. In verse 12, Jesus' comfort takes on a slightly different tone as he assures his disciples that even though he is leaving them, the program isn't changing. They're going to continue to do the same work that they have been doing with him. Jesus says in verse 12, the believing disciple will do greater works than Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 12. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he'll do even greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. Now, it's an easy verse to get caught up in. But in this context where Jesus is comforting troubled disciples, you you can see the main point, can't you? It's the continuity of the work. Along with the elevation, actually, of that work because of Jesus' departure. Jesus is saying, guys, you're you're troubled that I'm leaving, but actually it's a good thing. Nothing's going to change. You'll keep doing the same work. And actually, your work is going to become greater in some way. So what are these works? What is this greater work? Uh, At this point in John's Gospel, we've watched Jesus do some pretty phenomenal, miraculous things. He's turned water into wine. He's fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread. Uh, He's given sight to a man who was born blind. He's even raised a man back to life again after he'd been dead for long enough that his body started to stink. They're pretty miraculous things that Jesus has done. Is Jesus saying here to Christians that you will perform the same kind of miracles as he has done. A number of people across the Christian world nowadays would have you believe that. That because of John 14 verse 12, we all should be out there performing miracles, raising dead bodies back to life again. A lot of people build on this verse. The greater works are more miraculous works, doing lots of them. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. 
I wanted to take the time to try to unpack it a little bit so that you see the working and can figure out what Jesus is saying here. Because it is a little bit intricate. Uh, The reason I don't think Jesus is talking about miracles in this verse, there are a few reasons. Firstly, it's hard to imagine something greater in terms of a miracle than raising someone back to life again. I mean, where do you go from there? How do you elevate and do something more miraculous than bringing a dead body back to life? You can heal someone's back pain, you can heal their gammy leg, and that's well and good, but I don't know that I'd call that greater than raising a dead body back to life again. And even if you do see someone dead come back to life, that's just on par with Jesus. You haven't gone greater. So as I hear people talk about greater works as miracles, I'm just not seeing the greater over and above what Jesus did. Now, in response to that, people would come back and go, no, no, greater just means more, more numerous, more of the miracles. Uh, I I don't think that works because Jesus could have picked a different word to say more. Greater doesn't mean more. There are other words that he could have used, but he's gone with greater. He is talking about a different kind of comparison. It's not about a number of miracles. And another reason, this one's the kicker for me. Notice in verse 12, Jesus isn't just saying that some people will do these greater works. He says, the one who believes in me, anyone who believes in Jesus. So we're talking about something that should be the expectation for all people, not just Jesus' disciples around that dinner table, but anyone who trusts in Jesus should be doing greater works than Jesus. So if he is talking about miraculous deeds, then all Christians should be doing them, not just some. The problem is, when we get to 1 Corinthians, Paul makes clear in chapter 12 that not all Christians do miracles. Have a look on screen, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29. Or if this is particularly new for you, you might flick over to it in your Bible, check that this is what it says, maybe underline it there. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29. Paul says, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in other tongues? Do all interpret? Now, they're questions, yes, but they're rhetorical questions, and Paul's assumption is that the answer is no. It's the way he's phrased those questions. He expects us to say, no, not all people do miracles. Not all people have gifts of healing. Some people do. Some will go around doing miracles and healing people, but not all. And so, back in John 14, verse 12, the greater works can't be miracles or healings because that's not something that every Christian does. So what is Jesus talking about then? Well, the way you'd work that out is to look through all of John's Gospel and all the different places where Jesus talks about work or works. Okay, that's just a general Bible reading tip for you. When you come upon a word in a book of the Bible that you're unsure about, try to find any other places in that book where that word is used. Words get their meaning from context and so we can chase them all up. Now, throughout John's Gospel, the word work or works comes up 35 different times. Uh, I'd love to go through them all with you this morning, but you'd probably fall asleep. But you can do that work yourself. It's good to go and chase it all down. I've found two that I particularly want to show you. Two places that lead me to the conclusion that the greater works, ready to hear what I think it is, greater works is the worldwide announcement of the message of judgment and salvation. That's what I think Jesus is talking about, that greater works speaks of evangelism and people coming to life or being confirmed in judgment as they respond to our speech. 
That might sound wrong, sound like I'm pushing something into the text that's not there, but let me show you how I get there. So two places where Jesus talks about works. There's one where Jesus talks about greater works. One other place where greater works comes up. It's John 5 verse 20, up on screen for you. John 5 verse 20. Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing. And He will show Him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. What's greater works talking about there? These greater works that the Father will show the Son and the Son will do. Well, Jesus says those greater works are the giving of life. And he's not just talking here about the one man that Jesus brought back to physical life. It's talking about the eternal life that Jesus gives to all who trust in him. Jesus' greater works are that he gives people eternal life. That's John 5. He goes on as well to talk about judgment, but I haven't put it up there. You can see the, the context of greater works for Jesus, the giving of life and judgment. The second place that I want to show you this language of work, it's back in John 14. Have a look at verse 10. I didn't finish this one off earlier. You might have noticed I cut off verse 10 halfway through. Notice what Jesus says there in the second half of verse 10. The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who lives in me... Now, how would you expect that sentence to finish? If you're reading along and you're going, the words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own... I expect it to say, but the Father who lives in me speaks his words. Is that what you'd expect? That's the natural contrast. But Jesus says, the Father does his works. The words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own, but the Father who lives in me does his works. The Father works through Jesus speaking. See that there in verse 10? That's the force of the contrast. The Father works through Jesus' words. And so when, a couple of verses later, Jesus tells his disciples that they'll do greater works than his own works, it seems to me that he's saying that they'll see people, many people, come to eternal life as they speak. Jesus is sending them out into the world, and we'll see over the coming chapters that as they receive the Spirit, they'll be testifying to Jesus, and the Spirit will convict the world and confirm judgment or bring them life. It's as they go out into the world to speak, people come to eternal life. That is greater works, isn't it? And isn't that exactly what we see when we get to the book of Acts? Sure, the apostles do some miracles, but the great miracle of Acts is that thousands of people believe in Jesus and come to eternal life. So here in John chapter 14, Jesus is encouraging his disciples, guys, take heart. You've got work to do. Great work. Greater work than we have been doing. You've got greater work to do because I'm going. I'm dying and rising to new life. And because of my death and resurrection, you and others that you tell about me can join me in eternal life. Don't get troubled. Don't stay paralyzed. Take heart. Take comfort. You've got work to do. And friends, that's our business from Monday to Saturday, isn't it? If you believe in Jesus, then you are here in verse 12. You are one of the ones who believes in Jesus who will do greater works. You're someone in verse 12 that is caught up in God's work in the world. We have a world to evangelize. We have a city full of people who need to hear of Jesus because Jesus is the only way to the Father. 
And as they believe in Jesus, they can have life. If you've got a gift of miracles or healings, that's great. Do those as you point people to Jesus. Don't let your heart be troubled. All of us get to be involved in this greater work of seeing people come to life as we tell them about Jesus. How good is that? So don't let your heart be troubled. Yes, Jesus is gone for now. Yes, there's suffering coming for us. But trust Jesus. He's coming back to take you to be with him. You're on the right path if you're with Jesus. And you know the Father if you know Jesus. So let's get out there this week and do some greater works, yeah? Let's get out there and tell people about Jesus, trusting him to be with us and to work through us and to bring people to life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your tenderness with us. To reflect just on what we see of you in this dinnertime discussion with your disciples, your, your heart was troubled. You were the one staring down the barrel of excruciating pain, of suffering hell, descending to the dead. You're in great turmoil. And yet with compassionate care, you looked at your disciples and comforted them. And gave them words of encouragement. And Lord, we sit here this morning and for some of us, we are troubled. We're not sure where you are and what's taking you so long to come back. We're, we're facing opposition in the workplace, opposition in our families. We're just troubled about the circumstances of life. Lord, comfort us this morning by your Spirit. Take these truths and grind them into our hearts and consciences so that they would be a comfort to us. Help us to know with certainty that you have prepared a place for us in heaven and you're coming back to take us there. We're going to be with you and with the Father for all eternity. Oh, help us to know that truth deeply and dearly. Lord, help us to maintain that you are the way to the Father, that there is no other way. Comfort us with that truth, that we're on the right path. Comfort us with the truth that you are one with the Father that we can trust you, that you've revealed the Lord's will to us. Comfort us with these truths. And so send us out this week into your world to live and speak for your praise and glory. Would you bring people to life this week, even this morning? If there's someone here and this has been the first time that they've heard of Jesus, heard of his love for them, heard of his preparation of heaven for them. Lord, would today be the day of salvation? Bring them to life. And as you send us out this week, would you save people through our witness? Thank you that you give us the privilege of doing greater work. The work of seeing people come to everlasting life. Give us the words to speak this week. Give us the opportunities to speak them. Give us the courage to speak them. All for your praise and glory. Amen.